Welcome to HR Bytes, a podcast and video series to bring you stories of HR professionals who bring a think globally and act locally digital HR agenda to their work. But today is a very special show. My guest today is Mark Crowley. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you, Jay. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So, Mark, you are the author of the world-famous book, Lead from the Heart, uh, about transformational leadership for the 21st century, and you also host the acclaimed Lead from the Heart podcast. Uh, What do you think has changed since you wrote the book in 2011? That's a really great place to start because, um, you know, I made the decision to call the book Lead from the Heart because there's science that proves that the heart is actually playing a massive role in influencing our choices and our behavior. And when you think about engagement at work, for example, which we're all, you know, that's the holy grail to get engaged workforce. And if you realize that the heart plays a role in that, then leading from the heart is, you know, what comes from the heart goes to the heart, right? So that was my logic. But I also knew at the time that I had come from a corporate environment. I came from financial services, which is this dog-eat-dog kind of a world. And, you know, people are competing with each other all the time and not really supportive and, you know, almost exploitive of the way that you ask people to work for you. It's not really all that caring and supportive. And yet, you know, I'm coming out with this book called Lead from the Heart. And I thought, well, people are going to think I'm absolutely insane or a spiritualist or I had a religious breakdown, you know, on and on and on it went. So the truth is people had all of those reactions. Some of the people that I used to work with who saw me as a very successful leader thought, like, what happened to him? Like, he's been gone for two years and he wrote this book. And now, like, this is crazy. Like, are, are you worried about him? You know, that kind of a, like, nobody's going to take him seriously. So then I paid a woman who is a marketing specialist for authors like me who had never written a book before, who had never had any platform whatsoever. Like, how do you get exposure? How does anybody even know who you are, right? How do you get somebody to read your book? Or how, how are you speaking? And so... So I was urged to work with this woman and I paid her a substantial amount of money um, over f- five figures. And um, she came back and she said, you're going to fail if you continue to use this expression, lead from the heart. So what she was telling me was, you're going to be met with a lot of resistance. And she was right. I had companies that thought I was going to come and sing Kumbaya on stage, you know, that I wasn't going to talk about how to drive performance or get people working. And, you know, it was always just going to be this soft feel good strategy. So that was then. And then there's been this evolution. And but it's been a slow evolution. And so one day a few years ago. I had this thought that it's not going to be an evolution. It's going to be an epiphany. It's going to be a tipping point where we're all going to realize that this is the way to lead. Um, And I didn't know what was going to cause it. I didn't know when it was going to happen. And by the way, it's taken much longer than what I expected. But can you guess what it was that tipped it? That has so to answer your question, like what's changed? COVID. 
2020, right? The, the pan pandemic changed it. So suddenly we're forcing 70% of the workforce home and they've got kids that can't go to school. You have four, five, six people living in the same house trying to work and go to school and cook and clean and live a life. And, you know, leaders who just were calling and saying, hey, Jay, where are you on this? Where are you? on that and weren't asking is this a good time for us to talk do you have could could we talk you know like at nine o'clock will that work for you or should we do it later because of what you got going on with your family that sort of empathy and caring that we never really concerned ourselves with we were sort of forced into it but now that this is gone you know this is a year right this, this month is a year so we've all been you know wearing masks can't go out to dinner, can't get on an airplane, can't, I can't go on a stage. You know, there's, all of our lives have been changed completely. And we're kind of burnt out from it. We want our life to go back. But in the meantime, we're kind of thinking, God, you know, I need a little love from people. I need a little more patience. I need a little more empathy. And I think what's happened is, is that people have figured out that if I need this, you need this. And if I have that epiphany, if I have that kind of thinking, well, guess what? All of a sudden, the, the language lead from the heart is no longer this soft, weak, sentimental, this guy doesn't get business kind of an idea. It's, oh my God, like that guy is right. And that is what's finally happening right now. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, in your book, you presented so many really refreshing paradigms. Um, and one of them is the uh, is that engagement is a decision of the heart. Uh, and definitely that has come to the fore uh, in the past year, I would say. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, how how do you think this paradigm has played out this past year? And how do you think it is still relevant today, 10 years after you've written the book? Well, you know, what I'm talking about is is universal, right? So it's not about any one company. It's not about men or women. It's not about a particular age group. It's about human beings and how human beings operate. Right. So when I say that the heart is the driver of human engagement, what I'm really saying is, is that feelings and emotions drive human behavior. We think, you know, we're rational people. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. We all bought into that. Like the brain is where it's all happening and this is just a pump. And what I've discovered is that that's simply not true. That not only is the heart a feeling sensing organ, but that it's communicating constantly with the mind. So those feelings are saying, hey, my boss just put a thank you note on my desk saying how appreciative he was because of, you know, I stayed all weekend to get this project done. And he said, I can't thank you enough. That made me feel so good that now I want to go and do really great work for him. So it starts with the feeling and then the mind, right? So, so you look at that and you realize that if that's true, now let's go home. So let's go to somebody's home. And I call them up. And I go, hey, Bill, like, where are you on, you know, calling all these clients? You know, are you going to have that done today? And I hear kids screaming in the background or the wife saying, you know, I got to run to the grocery store. Is there anything you want? And, and you realize this is not the right moment for you to be asking Bill about his sales quotas or whatever expectations were. Right. But Bill is watching you and or me in this scenario. Right. So if I just keep going, 
where are you on this? When, when am I going to see this? You know, are you going to have that done today? Because I really want that done today. Bill is standing outside of himself going, this guy is a jerk because he's not being thoughtful. He's not understanding what's going on in my life right now. This is not the time for me to be having this conversation. I got to get my own space, my own life squared away. So if that boss, i.e. me, said, hey, Bill, I can tell this isn't the right time. So do me a favor, talk to your wife, get your kids squared away, and I'm going to be here for the next hour. Can you call me the next hour and we can finish this conversation? Now, how did I make, how did I make Bill feel, right? Yeah. Now I've made Bill feel, feel that you matter to me more than my sales, your kids and your wife and what's going on in your life matters as much to me because you matter to me. The other way is if I have a feeling that you don't care about me, that all you care about is the numbers, it's game over. You have lost any chance of engaging me because I don't trust you. I don't care about you. I don't respect you. And so I think smart leaders can sense that, you know, if you have people leaving for one, or you see people not really committing, or you can tell in your conversations, if you're attuned to what people are, you know, showing you, you can go, you know what, Jay's not with me on this, I must have lost her. So let me see if I can regain her, you know, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm sorry for what I did last week. I know I kind of, you know, wanted to get those numbers. I apologize. You know, I really realized afterwards that you had a lot going on, and I won't do that again. Now, how do you feel? Oh, so you thought about me and you realized that now I feel great about you again. So it's, it's, it's all about how you make people feel. And the heart is the detector for that. You know, the brain certainly plays a role in it. Um, but the point is, is that if we pay attention to how people feel, it creates a thought in them, which is to reciprocate. They want to give back to you because you're making them feel the way they want to be made to feel. Absolutely. And, and you know, you talked about how the this ugly virus has definitely forced us to all have an epiphany at the same time about what the bigger questions in life, right? And, and some of us are calling this the big reset. Um, and all of a sudden, we are all looking at uh, how to make that human connection at work. And we all know that the human connection is at the heart of work. Definitely. In the past year, we've learned that. Um, so, you know, you mentioned in your book, you had an inspiring message that people aren't really creatures of logic, but creatures of emotion. And you've talked a little bit about that, but could you expound a little bit more on that? Well, you know, it, it really goes to what we were just talking about, right? We, we pride ourselves on being really rational. But if you think about the decisions to marry somebody or to buy a car, or buy a house, or take a vacation, there's a feeling that's going on in there, right? It's hard to make a decision rationally. Do I marry Jay or do I not? You know, it's how does Jay make me feel? Does Jay make me feel like this is someone that I want to be with the rest of my life, right? That's not a rational thing. It's, it's all going on in here, right? But then we, we, we say, hey, I've decided to ask Jay to marry me. And you go, why? Well, you know, she's a good cook and, you know, she's, she's fun. And now we're up here. You know, the mind is making up all that. But really, the heart has already made the decision and we're just using our minds to rationalize. It. 
you know, and mm -hmm. so this is how we operate as humans. We're constantly being influenced by others. And so like we can feel whether we trust them or not, you know, just by the way they present themselves. And if we're sensing that we can't trust them, then we kind of retreat. Why would we retreat? Because the mind is going, hey, you know, this is not somebody you can trust, but you're feeling it first. And this is really important. So when you are managing people, if you can make them feel that they matter, if you can make them feel that they're valued, if you can make them feel like they're growing, because that's an essential, like one of the greatest drivers of engagement, if you can make them feel that they're, they're appreciated, if you can make them feel safe, Amy Edmondson at Harvard Business School calls it psychological safety. And this morning, I was, I have a ritual. I walk in the dark on the beach every morning and I had a dentist appointment at seven. So I was on the beach at like four o'clock this morning and I'm walking on the beach all by myself. And all of a sudden I thought it shouldn't be called psychological safety. It should be called emotional safety because what we're really talking about is how the safety is here. Are you making people feel safe? Right. Can they come and talk to you without being judged? Can they come and tell you that they've made a big mistake that needs to be unwound that's going to take your time? Are they going to yell that and held back and punished? Or are you going to be there to say, okay, let's figure it out together. I'm with you. You know, how are you going to treat them? Well, that's that's emotional safety. So if you can give people that, what you're doing is you are feeding people what they need in order to thrive. Now, big picture and is that, you know, this is sort of like, the advanced group, you know, I'm speaking to now, they can understand where I'm going. But this is really love. This translates into love because at the highest level, that's it's the greatest energy on the planet. And when you feel appreciated, you feel loved. When you feel valued, you feel loved. When somebody comes to you and says, Jay, I'm sending you to a class because I see potential in you and I want to give you an opportunity to learn this, you feel loved, right? Absolutely. So, that's what this is all about. That's where we're really going to it. Now, here's the problem. People hear love and they go, oh, this is touchy-feely bullshit, right? Or heart, they touchy-feely bullshit. Or you have a manager who just doesn't want to connect this way. I don't really want to, Jay, here are your goals. Here's your pay. Here's when I review you. If you do well, you'll get a bonus. If you do well, maybe you'll get some stock options. If you don't do well, we're going to have a conversation. That's the relationship that I want to have with you. Now go do your work. I don't care about your husband. I don't care about your kids. I don't care about what challenges you have at home. It's not my interest, right? And we have managers that are like that. They, it's just a transactional relationship. And unfortunately, when you're working with somebody for 10 hours a day, every single day, you can't have transactional relationships anymore. It doesn't work like that, right? And so I hate to say it, but we need to have managers that are grown up enough to understand that what people need are all the things that I just described, which inherently translate in, in, into love. But even if you don't want to get into the love, buy into the fact that when you support the human needs in people, all the things that I just expressed, that they will scale mountains for you. That's what I discovered. They will scale mountains for you and they will do it repeatedly. And the reason is, is you're giving them everything that they need in order to thrive. And when you don't give them that, then they start going, am I happy here? Do I want to keep working in this company? Do I like working for this boss? 
do I even want to be in this job? Am I going to work this weekend? You know, am I going to come in early? All that stuff. That's where the mind comes in, but it starts here. So this is the big, you know, this is the big epiphany that I'm hoping businesses are going to have because, you know, the truth is, Jay, I've paid a dear price for this. And I don't mean it to be, you know, woe is me. I just mean that in order to get people to buy into this, you know, I've invested all of this time with the podcast and the articles and, you know, sometimes interviews, but, you know, any way that I can possibly make it happen where I'm giving people like what I want them to go is, oh my God, like he's right. But we're past that time now. Now it has to be, okay, so now I understand how do I do it? What do I, you know, that's where we need to get to. So, so. To your point, uh, you tweeted on Valentine's Day, and this really, uh, you know, struck a chord with me. Uh, you tweeted, every Valentine's Day, I see articles about heart and leadership as if this is the right day to connect the two. But a Valentine's heart is a romantic one, and that's not what we need in workplace management. It's our physical heart that responds to caring. Could you elaborate a little bit on this distinction? You know, I'm wearing this heart <laughs> sweater no, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> for, no. for this episode today. And then I saw the tweet and I'm like, oh no, should I be wearing this? <laughs> you can see I've got a heart back there. I've got heart art, you know, so I'm very much, um, you know, I've, I've got this sitting on my desk. So, um, you know, it's, it's not a question of not being reminded of the heart. But what I don't want, um, and the CEO of a major consulting firm wrote an article and was talking about how he was thinking about Valentine's Day and why we need to lead from the heart. And I was like, that is an argument that falls so flat because we get caught up in the, it's romance, it's, it's you know, or it's the the kind of love that's not the intellectual love that I described, if you will, you know, right. All of a sudden it's like, you know, I got to hug people all the time and, you know, people have their own fantasies of what that Valentine heart represents and it never aligns to what I'm talking about. So I saw, I saw three articles on Valentine's day and I just wanted to scream because it's like, you, you're just setting this all back. This has nothing to do with Valentine's Day. It has zero to do with Valentine's Day. That's about love and relationships, right? That's, that's what Valentine's is about. I'm talking about how do you support human beings the best possible way to support them and so that you can expect them to perform. It's, it's still leadership. It's business. It's about getting people to do the job and do it well, but to do it in a way that makes them makes them but influences them to want to do it to love doing it you know i can't wait to get to work tomorrow as opposed to i can't wait till friday there's a big difference there so so you are okay with celebrating our employees and our teams on valentine's day but with the focus on you know leading from the heart and the and that heart that you refer to is the the physical heart it's the one day a year I wouldn't reference. So what I want is if you're going to have a celebration on Valentine's Day, make it about people's relationships, their boyfriends, girlfriends, their their spouses, you know, that kind of stuff, right? 
but don't bring leadership into it because it doesn't have any connection to it. It'd be the same it, 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 for for a different reason. But you know, if St. Patrick's Day, you wouldn't go, "Hey, let's talk about how St. Patrick's led." You know, we it, it's just celebrate the day and leave it alone. But it's the reason that it, it bothers me. You know, it sends a little electric shock into my system is simply because that's the fantasy that has held me back all of this time. The people who want to think that I'm going to come and sing Kumbaya on stage are the same ones who think, you know, this guy doesn't get business or he's got some touchy-feely business, you know, message and they associate the romantic heart with it. And it's all this wild fantasy that's not based in any reality. So when a CEO of a major leadership consulting firm comes out and associates the two, I just think he could not do more harm to, to the message, you know? So I hope that's clear. Yes, thank you for, you know, elucidating on that. So in your book, uh, you cited research from uh, Newcastle University in which uh, milk production increased 6% when cows were given names. So I'd like to ask you, will naming our chatbots have a better outcome for employee engagement platforms, especially like ours? We, we call ours HR Gecko Bot. You know, you know what? Um, there's evidence that, um, that by naming you know, that kind of technology, that there is wider adoption. So I'm not an, I'm not an expert in that, and I'm actually trying to think of the woman um, who has been studying this for many years at MIT, and her name is Sherry Turkle. Sherry Turkle is an expert on this and has been studying this and has shown that, sadly, human beings can adapt to personalize robots, almost like a pet. Like we can have a fondness for it. And it, she did experiments with this doll called the Furby. I don't know if you remember that, but, mm -hmm. you know, and, and demonstrated that people can react to it. So, so yeah. So naming, naming a bot, if, if you, if they're going to be interacting with it, um, if, if you want people to connect to it, you know, call it something other than what you just, what you just told me, the, the tech bot. <laughs> Is is probably the the least desirable of all the names. I'm, I'm not saying call it Madonna, you know, of but you know, come up with a cute name, something like you would name a pet, kind of a thing. But maybe okay. something or what I would do if it were in my company, I, and it's a tool that you want people to use. I would find some abbreviation or some connection to you know. The you know some, something that connects to your company so people can see where the name came from. Thank you. We'll definitely take that into consideration. <laughs> um, so today, um, as you mentioned, our challenge as leaders is to make the human connection uh, without getting lost in the ether, so to speak. Uh, what's one piece of advice you have for HR professionals who are looking to adopt or learn new technology during this time uh, to make a better human connection at work with the with the employee populations and within their departments as well. Well, okay. So I know this is a technology-oriented discussion and podcast. I just think that I know I think people are like immersed in technology. And so 
my advice to anybody in HR would be, how do you find ways to connect with people outside of technology? Because you're connecting with people in technology all day long, right? Mm-hmm. So how do, you, how do you connect with people individually in a way that makes people feel that they matter and that it's not just some HR universal, everybody needs to watch this video or complete this class or whatever, right? So, um, you know, and I think in my circle, you know, I, I have a big Twitter following and I get a lot of tweets in response. And the, HR doesn't have a good reputation to a lot of people, and right? And yes. so and I, I'm not an HR person. You know, I've worked peripherally to HR my whole career, but I've, I've had HR business partners my whole career. I have a great relationship with HR, but it resonates with me because you straddle the line between doing what senior management tells you to do and trying to create the impression that you're the friend of the employee, right? Yeah. And so if, if I'm straddling both worlds, you probably aren't going to do a very good job of that. So you have to kind of decide who are you going to be? Right. So my way of thinking, it would be the senior people probably need to be deferring to whatever the company needs. Right. But the people that interact with the managers, the recruiters, the HR business partners, you know, the person you go to when somebody offended you for something, you know, the employee complaints, whatever, you know, Uh those kinds of people, they need to be separate from that. And they need to be insulated from what's going on so much that they really truly can be advocates for people. And they should be, in my mind, the ones who are making sure that managers are sending people to class and getting enough recognition. And, and you know, so, so that HR builds this brand of employee advocate as opposed to, you know, we're going to let you all go if, if you know, we're not going to hit our earnings next quarter. You know, if, the minute people distrust HR and they, and they or they have a complaint against their manager and nothing gets done because that manager drives performance, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of done. So it, I think just broadly, you're on technology all the time. We're all zoomed to death, right? We're all videoed to death. So how do you make a connection with people on an individual level? And it sounds ridiculous, but like personal phone calls, scheduling time with people just to have a conversation, that's where a real connection comes in, right? That's just you and me, just you and me, right? And you're not going, well, you know, I'm really thinking about the other 30 people on your team, and I just know you're one of those 30 people, and so I wanted to talk to you. You lost me. You know, Mark, you're, 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 you're a great performer in our company, and I just wanted to talk to you. I just want to get to know you better. That's different than being one of the 30 or, you know, do you get where I'm going? Yes. Absolutely. So this is, it's a thoughtfulness. And then guess what? People listening to this go, I don't have time for this. Like, is he out of his mind? Does he know how much I have to do? Right? Well, okay. But what do you have time for? It's like, what are you prioritizing? I'm saying, if you do that, you're going to have an impact. So pick the things that you're going to have the impact with. You know, if I know I have, I have a, I coach a few people um, and they're all senior executives in major companies. And there's a situation that one of my clients had and it's a sticky wicket, you know, there's Mm -hmm. like, right. So this, this, this person wants to do something 
that I thought, okay, I mean, it's fantastic, but it also has pro- it also has a potential problem. So I said, do you have a friend in HR that you can go to and just say, hey, before I do this, this is what I'm thinking about doing. And do you think there's any downside to that? Now that's that's advocacy. That's like, let's talk it through. Let me help you, you know, and come to a decision. And that person basically said to me, well, you know, all the HR people, they're just corporate people, meaning they're not they're not friends. They're foes or maybe not foe, but not friends, not somebody you can just have that conversation. You know, somebody's going to keep it confidential. Right. So HR is a precarious kind of place because you're asked to keep confidences, but then, you know, then the reputation is that you sit around in a meeting and everybody, you talk about people and the word gets out and all of a sudden trust is gone. So I would just, to punctuate this, find ways to personalize things. You know, what can we do for you? We sent you home, you're working remotely. What's one thing I can do for you personally? I would like a new chair, you know? (laughs) Right? Absolutely. The the hyper personalization. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And and not technology. So anyway, that's my that's my bias because that affects this. Absolutely. So given the upheaval of all things in 2020 in work and in life, what's one workplace trend you think is here to stay? Um well there's a couple. So one is, is that managers are going to have to be more caring or let's, I'll just, let's just focus on that one. Okay. Because it's the obvious one. And so regardless of whether people go back to work in an office building five days a week, four days a week, or, or they work remotely forever, they're not going to suddenly go, it's okay. You don't need to be caring anymore. You don't need to be thoughtful. You don't have to have any empathy for what's going on in my life. It doesn't really matter that my kid's struggling in school or my wife and I are having arguments. It's it's okay. You know, don't worry about that anymore now that we're seeing each other all the time. That's not going to happen. So when people go back to work, whatever that's going to be, and I happen to believe most people are going to be working in an office building again. I really do believe that. Um, that's contrarian opinion right now, but I just think for a lot of reasons, that's what's going to end up happening. Once we just clear the whiteboard and COVID is behind us, we're going to go back to the way we used to. There's too much money invested in real estate. There's too much benefit in having people together. And we, yes, we may get some remote opportunities, but it's, it's going to be more 70, 30, 80, 20 than it is going to be 50, 50 or five four days a week at home but irrespective of that wherever people are working i truly believe that they're going to be demanding that the kind of management that i've been prescribing for 10 years that i have lived my entire career and that they have been experiencing probably the last three months it probably took most managers to get there but now that they're experiencing it they're not going to go, it's okay. You don't need to do that anymore. You can go be back to this selfish person you were before. It's okay. You know, <laughs> It's not going to happen. <laughs> Very so. true. Very true, right? We can't just flip the switch on that once we're here, that's right? That's worked in our favor, Absolutely. you know? Right? You know, it's like the dad that comes home every Friday night with ice cream. 
you know. So Friday night comes home with ice cream. Next Friday comes home with ice cream. Next next Friday, the fourth Friday, he doesn't come home with it. The kids go, "Oh, it's okay, Dad. Don't worry about breaking our tradition. Don't worry." They're gonna go get out in the car and go get an ice cream. You know, <laughs> that's the way it's gonna be. Yeah, we were like that when we were kids. Yes, I would attest to right? that. <laughs> we're still kids in that respect. So. <laughs> So this has been a great conversation about, you know, how we can lead with the heart. If we were to turn your book into a flip book, what's one chapter you would like highlighted in the flip book? Well, I'm not the most visual person. So when I think about a flip book, I'm trying to figure out like, what would those pages be? You know, you're turning them kind of a thing. But um so does it have to be a visual that you're, is that what you're looking for? Like which book would be the best visual? Which chapter of your book would be the best? If we were I to tell the story, of, you know, I tell the story in the book about my father who, you know, was um, brutally psychologically and emotionally critical of me my whole childhood and then kicked me out of the house right after high school. And so he, did a very good job of destroying my sense of well-being and self-esteem, you know, my ability to thrive and be resilient. So he undermined that. And then he kicked me out of the house with no support on any level, no financial support, emotional support. I saw him, you know, just a few times over the next 15 years before he died. Never went back for a birthday or Christmas or any of that, right? So that was very, not the way you want to grow up. Um, but he did something and he, he never taught me anything. He never spent any time to kind of invest in me or encourage me to learn. He trusted the teachers, you know, the school just figured that they were doing their job or the coaches and stuff like that. And so the flipbook would be the story of, I was a boy scout and you have these assignments. You have to learn like how to tie a rope or in this case, how to tie a, a tie, you know, like a, like, a, like a regular men's tie, a Windsor knot. And so what happened was that um, I just wanted the badge. I didn't really want to learn how to tie a Windsor knot. But the way it worked was you had this book and in the book were all the different things you were supposed to learn. And when you learned them, you took it to your parent and you asked your parent to sign that, you know, I'm attesting to the fact that Mark knows how to tie a Windsor knot. So my mom is, has died. So it's just me and my father. And uh, so I go, hey, could you quickly sign this for me? I need this for Cub Scouts tomorrow. So he opens up the book, looks at it. And he says, did you learn how to tie the tie? And I go, yeah. And so he signs it and gives me the book. So as soon as I can, I just like run out of the room, run upstairs to my room. And I'm like at the top of the stairs and I hear him go, Mark, come show me how you know, you know how to tie the tie. And now my goose is cooked, right? Because <laughs> now, he's, now he's calling me back and wants me. And so I had to come clean and tell him I don't know how to tie it. So what he did was very thoughtfully taught me to take the tie longer on one side, wrap it around, wrap it under, pull it down. And then he said, there's one final touch. You have to add the dimple because by adding the dimple, that is that demonstrates your 
pay attention. Like you're, you want to make everything perfect. And it sends this really great message about who you are. So the flip book would be me coming in with the book, asking him to sign it, running up the stairs, having me run back down the stairs, come back down, tears in my eyes, having to confide that I didn't know how to tie the tie, and then have him patiently teach me how to do it all the way down to the dimple in the tie. Wonderful story. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry to hear about the first part of it, but about the Windsor tie definitely resonates with me because I know my dad uh, taught my brother how to tie the Windsor knot and the dimple was the most difficult part of tying that knot, right? It, the dimple will never stay in the center. You know, I learned how to tie it too because I was curious uh, when he was teaching my brother, but it's so difficult. And, and that's the best part of the tie, right? If you see the dimple, you know the person knows how to tie that fence or not <laughs> so well, great story brother, you see your brother what my dad taught me was it's not from the front you pinch it from behind and that's what gives it the dimple that's what keeps it center and it stays all day so yep. um yeah. but that you know the, the reason that's such an important story is because it's the only thing he ever spent time to teach me it's the only time in my whole childhood that he took any effort to say let me teach you how to do this you know and, wow. it's, and, and I'm thinking that's what leadership is all about, is helping people grow, you know, and learn. So and, and that story has stayed with you. And I'm sure it has, you know, helped you in so many other spheres of your life and work as well. Well, I, you know, it, it helped me in the sense that I know that, you know, investing in people is really what I'm advocating for. And that's what that story was. I mean, look what he did. Right. Mm -hmm. But um but until you asked me about the flipbook, I hadn't really thought about that story in quite some time. So thank you. you know. <laughs> of course. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, so you have a great podcast. You have plenty of followers on Twitter. Uh, I mean, in the thousands. Um, but what's your favorite podcast when it comes to leading from the heart, when it comes to leadership or employee engagement? It's like asking which child is your favorite, right? <laughs> well, you gotta pick. You gotta pick. Everyone has a favorite. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, right before right before we signed on, I was listening to the one that's going to come out next Friday. So, it, it, what's happening lately, honestly, Jay, is they you know the newest one is the one that I love the most. An enormous amount of time into them, I give up every weekend to read my guest books. And, um, you know, so that takes up a lot of time. I can't do that during the course of the week. And then I summarize them. And then, you know, from here, I'll show you something. This, this, will, this, will, this will be, this, this is just a small package, but these, this is what I, I create notes for every book that I read. This is just the recent ones. And then, and then I prepare the questions. And so when I'm having conversations, I'm not like, so, why did you write the book? Or tell us about the book. I'm saying, hey, on page 23, you said this, and I'm not so sure I agree. So let's start there. And that's and so my guests are like, what? Like, <laughs> why would you do that? Like, how would you know? You know, because they're getting all they're getting are people that are superficially getting a summary of the book and going, so tell me about it. Like they're learning at the same time that they're asking questions where I'm coming at it from, I already understand this. And now I want to dig into it in a way that's going to give me the information that I want. And I think that's what people respond to. So I'm proud of the podcast. It's, it's now being heard in 152 countries. But um, 
the one that the there are several that I just like adore the people that I had on. Um, but recently I had one that it's the message that it's the research that I adore. And it's a, it's about the guest name was Stephen Treziak. He's a doctor in a, a healthcare, a large hospital in New Jersey. And long story short, he did research that proved that if a doctor, you, you wouldn't think that you would need to prove this, to be honest with you, in medicine. But he was a scientist. He thought science is what cures people. But what, what he proved through all sorts of research and reviewing other people's massive research on this, that compassionate behavior. So compassion, the synonym is caring. And caring is my language. Like I want caring leaders, caring managers. And if you don't care about and love other people and want to see them do well, you shouldn't be in management. So that's my thesis. Along comes this research now that shows that when doctors are compassionate with patients, if they had AIDS or cancer, not only do they heal faster, but in some cases they heal completely. Like it's like a miracle wow. because they're being tended to by somebody who's truly compassionate. The, the hospital chain had 450 doctors and 150 of them said, I'm burnt out. Like I'm tired of doing this job. That's not good when one third of your workforce is, you know, right, particularly that workforce. Mm -hmm. And so what they found was by just spending a small amount of time, like 40 seconds of just saying, hey, Jay, I'm, I'm your doctor. I know I've just given you a very difficult diagnosis, but I really want to make sure you know that I'm going to be with you all, every step of the way. So I'm here to help you and support you and help you get through this. He proved only took 40 seconds to say that. So the doctors themselves were saying, I don't have time to be compassionate with people. I got to be filling out forms and going on the computer and seeing a bunch of patients. And you're just giving me something. It all sounds good, but I haven't got time for it. And they proved 40 seconds, just spending little time. How are you? Tell me a little wow. bit about what's going on with you, right? Wow. Profitability of the hospital. Their, their revenues went up. Their costs went down. They became more profitable. People healed better. Doctors stopped being burnt out because they were fulfilled by the work they were doing. They could see that people were thrive. All of it, right? And it and it matches over my entire career experience of being that person and seeing how people responded to it, and then being able to say, "You're being so well supported that I'm going to raise the bar on my expectations because you can do it." Like, why would we do average work when we can do great work? And so the reason that I was constantly promoted and got all these great jobs was because I was always expecting more of people than anybody in anybody the company was asking, right? So if I ask you to do, I'm making, you don't even need to know what it means. If I say, get 10,000 by the end of the month, um, you're going to strive for 10 or 11, right? 11 or 12 is going to be really good, right? Because mm -hmm. it's way over the 10. Yes. But with my team, I'd say, look, you're getting all of your needs met. I'm doing everything I could possibly do to support you. So let's shoot for 14. This is a real story, by the way. I'm not going into the details of it. But yeah. they were like, what? You're gonna, well, the company is only asking us for 10. And I go, I know, but you can do 14. 
And, and by the way, they were being rewarded for that incremental four. So there was a financial benefit to them for doing it, right? Uh-huh. Wasn't, you know, I'm, I'm just, you know, cha, you know, do more and more. <laughs> and so in that scenario, the company asked for 10. My peers across the country, the first month, averaged 6,700. They didn't even come close to the 10. I set our goal at 14. What do you think we hit? 21,000. The, the president of the company called me and said, what, what just happened here? Is this fraud? Like, you know, because I said, no. I said, you know, it's because I have an incredible team of people and we're prepared for this. And that 21,000 kept going and it wasn't until the end of the year that the average for the whole company was 10,000. So it took the whole company a year to get to 10 and we were twice that for the whole year. And that's what you can do. So if you ask people, you work for Mark Crowley, what's one word you would say that he used to describe him? You would say, well, he's the heart guy. But that's not what they would say. They'd say, he's the most demanding guy I ever worked for. <laughs> wow. I was. You know, I wanted, I'm like, hey, if this is my life, you know, and there's no reincarnation, you know, this is all I get. I want to. I want to have some success. Let's let that, let let that be our driver. Let's let's do good work. Mm-hmm. Let's go home feeling like we nailed it. We did great stuff. Are there any other podcasts that you like to listen to and you'd recommend to our audience? Um, I I like um, Alec Baldwin. If you know who he is, yes, um, he. You know, uh, he, he he has his own podcast and he brings on guests that I always find interesting. Um, and he's, a, he's an interesting interviewer. Sometimes, you know, I think the risk in a podcast is that the host becomes too foot, too front forward. Right. And I, you know, and I, it's like, I think I'm an interesting person, but I think when I'm having a podcast guest on that, it's really my job to, and I can relate and have fun and ask questions. So I'm very much part of it, but I really want to make sure that what people leave with is an understanding of the work itself. And he does a good job of that. So that's, that's one of my favorites. I listen to It's American, This American Life uh, with Ira Glass. I think he's, uh, you know, that's masterful podcasting and he's been doing it for, you know, 30 years and he's, you can just see how comfortable he is in doing it. It's, you know, when I first started, you know, like, am I going to blow this, you know, and very nervous and, you know, and I'm sure, you know, he's sitting there, so, you know, to tell me, how are you? You know, it's like, it's just very, very conversational. So um, I learned from that, you know, just to relax. Yeah. Well, I learned from you, so um, I'm sure, you know, the learning is passing down. <laughs> so that's awesome to learn. Right? Yeah, we learn from each other. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so if you weren't writing a book or talking to executives about leading from the heart, what would we find you doing? I, I work a lot, to be honest with you. Um, you know, it, it, it takes, it takes, 
I, I like for the podcast, I described my process. So that's very time consuming, right? And so, you know, everything that you read, when you read the description of the podcast, I've written that, you know, all the tweets, the LinkedIn posts, all that. So I'm doing all that. So um, that takes up a lot of my time. And I, I hope that people can tell that when they read my tweets that I'm not just calling it in. You know that I'm I'm trying to make a connection with what I'm saying with my tweets. So that's that's actually very time consuming, believe it or not. You know, so um, I can to, see that to, when I follow your tweets, I can see that I can see that connection you're trying to make, and I that's why I follow you. So thank you for tweeting all that good stuff out. You'd really make a difference. I, you know, in, it wouldn't be fun if it wasn't interactive, if people weren't responding and saying things and, you know, building a relationship. And, you know, I spoke in London right before COVID and, you know, two of my Twitter followers were there. You know, one of them hired me. The other one heard I was coming and go, I live in London. Can I come? And, <laughs> and so, you know, I'm like, wow, like that to me is, is really cool. But Twitter is the reason my book has been sold all over the world. Twitter is the reason that my podcast has been heard in 152 countries. Um, and LinkedIn, to be honest with you, there's some of that there. But, but I, it, you know, going back to the theme of your show, I'm very grateful to technology. So, which is why, you know, if you're going to keep, if you're going to attract people, you want to keep them. You don't want people going, you know. I don't know why I followed this person. So I find it worth my while. So this is a long way of saying I spend a lot of time. If I'm not reading or preparing for what I'm doing, um, I'm investing in myself somehow to either give back or give myself more information so that I can just keep that going. Um, but I live in a beautiful place and we've got wonderful weather. So, you know, I walk on the beach every single morning uh, for at least an hour, hour and a half, you know, before the sun comes up and have my morning meditation. And so I give myself that and, you know, I've got a, a, a family. So, you know, I certainly invest myself with them as well. Great. Um, what's your favorite sport, if you have any? Um, well, you know, I used to be a runner, but I, I have a, I have like a, an injury that would need surgery. It's a stress fracture and I don't want to have it. So oh, running is come. That's, I know, but it's okay. Cause running ultimately it, it breaks you down, you know, which is what the doctor said. It's like, this should be no surprise. You used to run marathons and half marathons. And so it's caught up with you. So the walking is still like, you know, walking on the beach is a pretty great thing. Right. But I'm also a golfer. Um, and so, and I've started to put in more time into it. Um, I have a son and he's, he's now playing and he got really, really good. So I'm trying now to, you know, keep my game in good shape and, but it's a lot of mental stuff. It's interesting. Golf is a very, very much a, a, in your head kind of a game and managing the chatter and all that. And so, um, that helps me, you know, to, to kind of think about, okay, how do you, tone that voice in your head. By the way, um, my next podcast, which is the one I was listening to before we got connected, is about how to manage the chatter in your head. And it's absolutely magnificent. It's so, so great. Really great. A guy, his name is Ethan Cross. His name is, let me see um, if I can find it. Um, so that's the book. 
and he's a psychologist, but he's at the Ross Business School in Michigan, University of Michigan. And he's a brilliant guy and he's done some great research. And I don't know anybody who doesn't have a voice in their head, you know, giving them some kind of critical feedback. And he's just got some wonderful advice, research on how to, how to manage it and tame it, which the reason I thought of it is because golf, you know, after you hit a bad shot, your mind starts going, you're, you're a crappy golfer and you'll never get good at this. And you have to like, how do you, how do you work with that? So that comes out next week. Well, we'll we'll add the link in our show notes. And I definitely didn't know about this chatter and golf because I've only played golf on the Wii, you know, the electronic version. Oh. <laughs> and I love it. I just love it. There is no chatter there. That's funny. I'll have to try that. It's really fun. I mean, I loved it. You know, I always thought golf was boring. And so I, I'm a big tennis fan and I've always followed tennis and I try to play tennis whenever I can, but I have an injury too that doesn't allow me to play. But golf on the V, oh my God, it's just awesome. <laughs> so I'll have to try that. I'll have to try that. It's great. Definitely. So I know you give back a lot. Um, how do you get, enjoy giving back to the community? Could you, you know, tell us different ways that we could volunteer our time? Uh, I know we are all kind of, you know, indoors now, but after we all try get get out of this virus, hopefully soon, how do you think uh, we should be volunteering in our communities and also giving from the heart? Well, I think giving is a personal thing. So you have to kind of decide what your cause is, right? So my cause is is actually large. It's I want to change the world, you know, and that sounds ridiculous, right? And you're going to have somebody go on, you know, head slap. But, but what I'm really trying to do and have been trying to do for quite some time now through my book and all my work is to convince people that the way we've been managing people traditionally isn't it didn't work in the first place effectively. It did a lot of harm to people. It may have gotten performance, but it didn't get what you could get. But more importantly, you're not going to be able to get what you need from people managing the old way. And the way that we need to be managing is the opposite of what you've always thought would work. So that's a head spinner for people. Like the last thing we ever thought we needed to be was caring to people, right? It's like, no, you keep them under your thumb. You keep them in fear. You keep them under pressure. You micromanage them, right? You threaten them, all that, that kind of stuff, you know? You don't pay them enough. And all the stuff that we think we needed to do in order to make it all work is wrong. So my cause is to help people see that message and understand it. So the tweets have intention, the articles have intention, the podcast has intention, the book clearly has an energetic intention. And so what I'm hoping is, is that people can feel this message and it translates up here, the same theory that you know I'm talking about, so that people can ultimately, you know, like it's just water on rock. You get to people where they go, oh, oh, that's right, okay. And you shift them. So I'm not out in my community, you know, working the bread lines or doing those kinds of things. I don't have time for those things. I'm affecting people all over the world in the way that they think about leadership. And that's the most fulfilling thing that I can do. Thank you, Dave. This is great. I appreciate it very much. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for being my guest today. I really learned so much from you today. And I'm sure our guests also, uh, our audience today have uh, really, you know, got some thought provoking nuggets from you. Um, so thank you for being here. I really appreciate your graciousness and accepting my invite. And um, audience, if you have any questions about today's show, you know where to reach Mark. He's on Twitter. So do reach him uh, and listen to his podcast and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode today. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jay. Bye-bye.